Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Light Watkins. Light Watkins has been a meditation and spiritual teacher for more than 20 years. He's the author of The Inner Gym, and he hosts a weekly podcast about hope called At the End of the Tunnel. Light became nomadic in 2018 and now travels the world giving talks on happiness, mindfulness, inspiration, and meditation. Which sounds true, Light Watkins has written a new book. It's called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Light Watkins is a leader. Listen to him describe the leaps of faith that he takes in order to follow his heart, and in so doing, inspires us to do the same. Here's my inspiring conversation with Light Watkins. Light, at the very beginning of your new book, Knowing Where to Look, you talk about how in May of 2018, which would be about three years ago now, you decided to basically sell almost all of your possessions as long as they could fit. You kept the stuff that could fit in a backpack and a small overnight suitcase. You got rid of everything else and you went on the road and have been living a nomadic lifestyle. So let's start off. How's it going three years later? It feels just like yesterday when I started. It feels it feels um, feels great. You know, it's not something you really get used to. I don't think because you're you're definitely living from a capsule wardrobe. So that's that's interesting. You're always seeing the same items in rotation every three or four days. You're wearing the same thing, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been great. I love it. I mean, it keeps you on your toes. It's not for the faint at heart at all. People keep asking me, um, you know, where are you going to be this summer? I have no idea where I'm going to be past May. My my current situation is up and up at the end of May. I have an option to extend it, um, but I may be somewhere else. I don't know. But that's kind of the norm. That's the new norm. Is you don't really know what's going to happen beyond two or three months out. And before the pandemic, it was really two to three weeks out. And I would have some like sort of tent pole events scheduled throughout the year. And then I would just kind of build around those. So I'm fortunate in that I've created a lifestyle where I, I work, I can work on the road and it gives me an excuse to travel to places and get paid for it. Um, but since the pandemic has happened, I've been more stationary, but still living out of the backpack and. Um, yeah, and just kind of having fun in the process. It's a lot of fun seeing how little I can go without. And what inspired you to do this? I just got the feeling. It's kind of like in the book where I talk about inspiration being a feeling of something pushing you in the direction of um, something that excites your heart. So I, I think it was less of a tangible thing or person. And I just kind of got the feeling I did have a, a friend or two who had been living that lifestyle for a little while. But I think what got me over the hump was just that urge. And it was honestly, it was the same feeling I had, like I mentioned in, um, in the book, 
um, in that story of traveling to Paris, getting the one-way ticket to Paris after quitting my first quote-unquote real job, it was that same feeling. And I'm, I've become so familiar. That was 20-something years ago. I become so familiar with that feeling that when it when it bubbles up from its inside, I know to take it seriously. And I and and I didn't just get it like the week before. I got it probably a year and a half before. And I spent that year and a half thinking to myself, okay, I'm gonna take this leap. Um, and it's getting closer and it's getting closer and it's getting closer. And then finally it became real when I put my 30 day notice in for my uh, two bedroom apartment in Santa Monica and started listing my uh, items for sale or just to come and get in on whole on a Craigslist and having people coming over and doing yard sales and, and telling my car lease uh, company that I was no longer interested in renewing the lease after May of 2018. And that, that's when it became very real. So that's where the heart rate starts to go up a little bit. But the funny thing about that kind of inspiration is once you take that big leap of faith, it's initially scary in the same way that maybe jumping into the Ganges River in India, it's a little bit murky. You're not quite sure what's going to happen. It's freezing cold. But once you're in there, it's like, oh, well, it's not as bad as it was in my head. And I feel like inspiration is a lot like that for for a lot of people you know it's a it's scary to take the big leap of faith but once you start down that road it becomes less scary and it's, it becomes more logistical and strategic and it's just like how am i going to continue navigating this in the best possible way now like you said there's a feeling that you have come to recognize mm-hmm. you had this feeling 20 years ago when you made a big change took a big leap of faith what's the feeling what does it actually feel like it's scary and it is anticipatory. It's something you kind of look forward to, but it also makes you very nervous and maybe even a little bit anxious. And the telltale sign is you don't know how it's going to turn out, but you also know that it's going to stretch you in a good way, in a positive way. It's going to get you into a place where you have to be very present and, uh, and that you're going to learn something about yourself or about the world or, or about life. And so it's just, a combination of all of those feelings. Yeah. And you've described it as a, a leap of faith. What mm. is, what's your faith? Well, the faith part is you just don't know how it's going to turn out. So it can apply to any religion or any spirituality or any of that kind of stuff. But my personal um my personal relationship with faith is that it's a trust in a higher power or higher intelligence that where I'm being guided is where I'm supposed to go. So there's this sort of internalized subconscious or spiritual or karmic destination that has been encoded within my spiritual DNA. And, uh, and so certain opportunities light up my heart more than other opportunities. And, and this is, I believe this is true for everybody, but we may call it different things. And when we're able to, to take action on it, my, the first um, dose in the book is about the Mark Twain quote, which he says, your two most important days, the day you were born and the day you find out why. And I said, a third day that's also probably most important is the day you take action on your why. So when you have the when you build up enough courage to take the action step, that's where the pieces start to sort of fall into place. And you understand, oh, that's why I was in that traumatic situation 10 years ago. It was preparing me for this thing that I'm experiencing now. That's why I was, had, I was forced to drop out of college and get a job at the car wash. It was preparing me to navigate the situation that I'm in now. So you start to connect the dots in hindsight. And I think that's what solidifies your life calling or your purpose. Specifically, when I'm thinking of the leap of faith that you took to become a nomad. So here's, here's what I'm curious about. There's several things I'm curious about. When I think of like giving away a lot of my possessions, selling a lot of my possessions, turning in the lease on my car, 
I hear voices in my head that say, this is really stupid, Tammy. And for me, it might be, but that's okay. I'm not inspired to do it. But I'm just wondering, did you hear voices like that, that said, you know, Light, what the heck are you doing? You're just going to have to buy all this stuff again. And it's going to cost you a lot more when you go to replace it. And did you have anything like that, that was questioning your decision? So the point I make in the book is that this wasn't my first nomadic adventure. This is actually my third. So it wasn't my first rodeo. <laughs> so I kind of understand, I have an understanding of those mechanics. So to answer your question, no, I wasn't afraid of those things. Um, and, I, and I'm a big proponent of baby steps, right? And so I've been taking these sort of baby steps for a very long time with practicing listening. I'm very clear there's a practice and it's a process and you have to you have to do it in small ways. And so, you know, for the people listening to this, in order to kind of build up to that, I, it's, it's like asking a Cirque du Soleil performer, are you afraid of doing a backflip? It's like, well, you know, I've done a backflip from 500 feet up, you know? And so you're so used to it. It's the little things don't really um, make you afraid. What it was, was inconvenient though. It was very inconvenient for, um, you know, cause my life was as busy as anyone else, anyone else's life. It was at the time that I was releasing my last book and, um, and I was doing a bunch of appearances and things on my schedule to talk about that book. And that was, but I flipped it. I used that as an opportunity. I said, okay, I'm gonna be on the road for the next 12 months doing all these book events. Let me use this as an opportunity to practice being nomadic again. And, uh, but this time much more intentional about doing it for an extended period of, of time, which I think uh, once you make it bigger than yourself, because I also thought to myself, I'll write a book about this one day. And so let me really go into it so I can really help people with, with real world experience on how to, to minimize the whatever is unnecessary in life so that you can maximize whatever it is you truly want to be um, doing in life. So I went into it with a very, very specific purpose. And I think that helped to overcome some of the busyness. And, and if there was any fear, it was a fear of, of not getting things done while I was going through this process. So minimizing to maximize. I like that. What are you working on maximizing? Your presence, mostly being present. Right. Because what I noticed was when I was on the road before that, I'd be in this beautiful environment and I'd be thinking, oh, I got to move my car next week. Oh, you know, I got to make sure such and such the landlord can get in and, you know, do whatever. Uh, the gardener's coming. And so every time you think about these kinds of things, it makes you less present to whatever's happening around you. And it's like you spend your life. Um, caring for this, essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use fairly harsh language, but essentially a storage room <laughs> with a bed in it is what our houses are. And so it causes us to put a lot of emphasis on the sentimental value of the stuff that's in our house. Meanwhile, there's sentimental things happening around us all the time. And really that sentiment can come with you anywhere you go. So it's kind of, it was kind of a simulation of putting myself in that space in that internal space and just to see what it was an experiment. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to miss all of my stuff. I didn't know if I was going to crave that same level of stability. And, and honestly, I haven't, it's been wonderful. It's been probably the, I haven't missed anything. It's just like, you know, I lived in New York for seven years and that was wonderful. I love New York. Every time I would leave and come back, Oh, just, the energy would envelop me and I would just be so excited to walk faster and dress in all black and, you know, do the whole New York thing. And then I got to a point where I decided I'm done with New York. I think this is it. I've, I've, I've spent my time here. I've enjoyed every second of it. And now it's not so enjoyable. And now when I land in New York, it doesn't feel that same way. And, and then that was my, that was my, my, um, hint from the universe that it's time to, to switch it up. And it was a kind of, it was the same kind of, kind of pattern in that once I left that all, all that apartment stuff behind, I, I didn't miss any of it. And that's, that was my confirmation that, oh yeah, I, I was, I listened to the right voice because there, there are a lot of voices inside 
right? There's the pain voice, the trauma voice, the stress voice, the social conditioning voice, the political, all the voices that we're encountering and parental voices, but then there's also the still small voice. And when you can learn to hone in on that still small voice and, and that's the, that's going to be the quietest one. Cause the other voices that you talked about, Oh, you're crazy. You're stupid. What are you doing? Like those voices are in there too, for everybody. And you can listen to them or you can quiet down and see if you can tap into the still small voice. So that's where meditation comes in handy. I've been meditating like clockwork for 20 years. So you, we can't discount that because that creates that space to be able to hear those more refined, subtle voices. And, and therefore you're able to listen to them a lot, a lot quicker. So again, for people listening, this is not a call to get rid of all your stuff and you know, take a leap of faith tomorrow. You got to build up to it. You got to get your inner practices going and consistent. You got to start listening to the voice. If the voice tells you on the elevator, you know, while you're staring at your co-elevator rider's shoes that you should compliment them, then do it. You know, if the voice says, Hey, go, they're attractive, go ask for their number and invite them out to coffee. And we start talking ourselves out of it because we're listening to the other voice. You need to override those voices and go do it. And that's how you build up the tolerance for those negative voices. And you're able to, to act upon the still small voice. And that still small voice ultimately gets louder and louder and then becomes a loud, annoying voice. And you can't ignore it anymore. Very good, very clear. There are so many quotes from Knowing Where to Look that are memorable, that are the kinds of things you want to write down and you know stick on your wall someplace. But here's one I really liked, and it was uh, about bravery. And you write, bravery isn't about being fearless, it's about loyalty, loyalty to yourself. And I thought that was so powerful. And I wanted to hear you say more about the type of loyalty you're talking about. Yeah. So just using an example that I think everybody is familiar with your GPS, right? The reason why we enter in a destination on our GPS is because we're not quite sure how to get to this place or what the most efficient way to get to the place is. But that doesn't lock us into that particular route. It just maps it out for us and it gives us cues and prompts on how to get there most efficiently and how to avoid the traffic and how to, you know, there's an accident on such and such freeway and et cetera, et cetera. So we have free range. We have full freedom to take any route we want. We can even go in the opposite direction, but that doesn't stop the GPS from saying, oh, you want to make a left here at the next corner or if we miss that corner, okay go up another two miles, make a left. Like it's going to keep rerouting us back to the destination. And when I'm talking about it's being loyal, it's really, it's being loyal to your heart. So your heart is that GPS. The destination has been encoded in your spiritual DNA. And that's why you feel charmed or called to go to architecture school instead of marine biology school, because there's something at in that direction of architecture school, that is a part of that routing towards your destination, whatever that is. That's why some people are called to have 10 kids and some people don't want to have any kids. That's why some people want to have snakes or some people want to have pugs, right? Whatever your thing is, whether it's playing video games or helping the homeless, my, my, that, that daily dose is really saying, be loyal to that because that's not coming from from you, you would do that anyway. You would do that if nobody was watching and that's how you know it's a, it's a, it's a milestone along that route towards your karmic destination. And if you listen to whatever you're passing by saying, hey, don't go this way. No, your GPS has the most accurate information around where you're going. The person on the side of the road telling you to go back, they don't know where you're going. Only your heart knows where you're going. So you'd be benefiting yourself the most by being loyal to that. All right, Light, now I'm going to be a little confessional with you. There are sometimes these things that I, I recognize the truth and value in them. And yet there's a part of me that's also like, oh, really, is this a bunch of kind of like woo-woo nonsense? Both happen at the same time 
for me. And it's probably why I've been hosting Insights at the Edge for so long, is that I have the kind of personality that, that sees things that way. But here's one of them. When people talk about the synchronicities on their path and how you know this person showed up and then this person, it all confirmed and it all worked out. And there's a part of me thinks, yeah, that's how it works. When you're in the flow, all these synchronicities happen. And then, then another part of me think, oh, here's one more magical thinking person who's projecting synchronicities to justify the way that they're going. And you tell stories in the book that are beautiful stories of synchronicity. And I'm wondering how you view this because I have a sense that it's safe to ask you this question that comes from both sides of myself, if you will. I'll tell you, I, I, I can top that actually, because <laughs> I have one that bugs me, which is the manifestation conversation, right? Like, oh, you know, manifest abundance, manifest this, manifest that. And my question is, when are we not manifesting? Because if that's true, that if we can project our mind or our vision onto something and it, it sprouts forth, then it's also got to be true for when we're unintentionally projecting our, our thoughts onto a situation. And if something bad or negative comes from that, then that's also a part of the manifestation principle. But I will say that in my understanding of things and in my direct experience, it's all synchronistic in the sense that it's all connected to our path. So even if it's something that feels uh, detached or random, it doesn't, it's not, our path is not contingent upon us being aware that we're on a path is, is the point. So we can be in a situation that feels completely unconnected, disconnected from whatever we feel like should be happening and yet we're still on our path. And, you know, we all, and you, 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 you know, with all the biographies and memoirs you've published, it's really easy for anybody to go back in history and see, oh, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened and that wouldn't have happened and X, Y, Z. And you can kind of, you, you can see a breadcrumb trail all the way up to that that whatever the success or whatever that moment was in someone's life where they felt like they found themselves, they became self-realized as they say over in Eastern philosophy, right? But when you're in it, as Steve Jobs eloquently noted, you can't see, you can't connect the dots moving forward. So it's, I think that, that um, inability to discern whether or not there is such thing as synchronicity or coincidence or serendipity or, you know, any of the manifestation. I think that's a part of this that's, that's encoded in the system and that's to make things a little bit more interesting and, and to make the idea of a leap of faith more potent, right? If you know, if there's a hack where you can know that the net is going to appear, it's not as interesting to take a leap of faith. Everybody would do it. So what's the point, right? But the idea, it's like a kid going through the, the little house of mirrors or something like that. Like the fact that you don't know how to get out, but an adult, you know, there's a way out. We know there's a way out, which is it's a, the fun is finding the way out, right? And I feel like life is like that to an extent. It's kind of encoded for, from whatever that higher intelligence is, which is probably us. Um, it's, it's a way to make life that much more interesting. So I don't have the definitive answer, but I, I like it. I like, I like that we're asking these questions, you know, at the highest level of, of you know, being in this space, this, this space of, of talking about spirituality and, and, uh, and you, we don't know. We still, nobody really knows definitively what is going on. And I, I think I like that. I like that we're even talking about it. Yeah. And as you know, you, you made this beautiful comparison. I liked it to a Cirque du Soleil person who's doing a backflip from 500 feet and say, I'm done. So here you are, you're someone who takes these leaps of faith and you have. So I'm curious, how do you use synchronicity when you're navigating your life? How do you use it? So do, I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think that anyone gets to a point where they, they're free of fear necessarily. I feel like it's uh, you just start to operate at a higher and higher level, which usually means you operate um, 
in spaces that are larger than, than just your individual needs. So personally, I'm not worried about, am I going to have food to eat tomorrow? Am I going to have a place to stay? Even though I don't have you know, a lease anywhere, I know that I'm going to be okay. I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. I don't have a bunch of you know assets and trust fund. I don't have that stuff, but I have trust that if I keep doing what I'm feeling called to do, that all of my needs will be met. And so, and, and then also I know that I have a platform and I have relationships that give me an opportunity to tell my story. I can tell my own story and then I have relationships such as with Sounds True that allow me to tell my story on a, on a wide basis and that can inspire other people. So I think about all of that when I'm making decisions um, and, and experimenting, because for, for me, it's very much still an experiment. Um, that if it if it works out, or if I can if I can um, dissect my experience in a way that brings some value to me, and I share that with other people, then other people will have more trust or more faith. So it's very much I'm taking a leadership position, and and seeing my life as a I'm like the mad scientist out here trying things out on myself and on my own life, not so that anyone can emulate everything that I'm doing, but so that people can look at what I'm doing and I can hopefully explain it simply and, and intelligently enough that they can cherry pick whatever they want, whatever smaller scale experiments they want to try and then hopefully work up from there. That's kind of how I, I see my, my own role in all of this. Well, uh, First of all, you are a leader, Light, and I want to uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the loyalty you're showing to your own heart and path and the way you're doing it. And I noticed right here in this conversation, uh, you inspired me to question what is real security? What is security? And the ideas I have about security. So that's, that's powerful. So thank you. Okay, back to your book, Knowing Where to Look. You tell a lot of stories in the book, but... Here's one that really, it really got to me in a good way. It made me really think. And it's a story about an African king and his close friend who would say, this is good, even when really difficult things happened. And I'm going to have you tell the story. And then we can talk about uh, why this story made such an impression on me. Sure. Would you prefer me to read it or just tell it? I can do either. It's up to you. Oh, why don't you read it? That sounds fun. Okay. Because it's, it's, if I tell it, I can kind of drag it on. But if I read it, it's very succinct. All right. This is good. An African king once had a close friend with whom he grew up. And the close friend had a habit of looking at every situation that occurred in his life, positive or negative, as good. He would constantly remark, this is good. Well, one day the king and his friend went on, went on a hunting expedition and it was the friend's job to load the rifles. And the friend had apparently loaded one of the guns incorrectly because when the king pulled the trigger, it backfired and blew off his thumb. And after examining the king's thumbless hand, the best friend remarked as usual, this is good. To which the king replied, no, this is not good. And in a fit of anger, the king had his close friend thrown in jail. About a year later, the king was out hunting in an area known to be inhabited by cannibals. And he ended up being captured and bound. And as the cannibals began preparing the king to eat, one of them noticed that he was missing his right thumb. Being superstitious, they never ate anyone who was less than whole so they set him free. And as he returned home, the king realized that his dear friend was right after all. Getting his thumb accidentally blown off was indeed a good thing. He immediately freed his old friend from prison, apologizing profusely and telling him all that happened with the cannibals. I'm so sorry for sending you to jail for all this time, he said remorsefully. It wasn't right for me to do that, and I hope that someday you can forgive me. No, 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 his friend interrupted. This is very good. 
And the king snapped, this is not good. You have to stop saying that. This is not good. How could sending my best friend to jail for one year possibly be good? And the best friend said, no, it is good because if I hadn't been in jail, I would have been in the cannibal village with you. All right, then. So the reason uh, I love this story so much is I very much relate to the character of the king in this story saying, mm -hmm. what? Stop saying this is good. This is not good. I, I very much relate to that. And in fact, often, you know, when I know people who will say to me, you know, this is good. I'm like, oh, come on. Come on, please shut up. Just shut up. You know, you're, you know, so how do you avoid falling into a sort of Pollyanna pitfall, but at the same time, appreciate the truth of this story? You know, it really just comes down, I think it comes down to um, accumulated experience with it, combined with keeping the camera rolling, because you won't understand why it's good, maybe not until the end of your life, maybe not until you transition to the next dimension, and you'll be able to look back and see how all the dots connected. So, you know, for myself, that's where faith comes in. That's where trusting comes in. And unfortunately, you can't get around that because when you really get granular about it, there's nothing that we control. There's nothing that we can predict, right? Nobody predicted the pandemic of 2020 and that the whole global economy was going to shut down. Not even the most spiritual people knew that that was going to happen. So evidently, there's a whole aspect of life that's completely out of our control. And I find in my experience that the more I can embrace that aspect of life, the more I can see the silver lining in the moment to moment instances that may not line up with my preferences and be okay with it. I was actually having a conversation with my brother earlier today and I was kind of being uh, silly when I said this, but there's some truth to it. I said, I think the key to happiness is just to have lower expectations. And, and if anything, you'll be pleasantly surprised all the time, you know, because um, things just don't happen the way you, you want them to. But if your expectations for life being perfectly aligned with your preferences are fairly low and your, your ability to adapt to change is fairly high, which I attribute my meditation practice with, then I think you will end up converting most of your experiences to something positive, some sort of opportunity. I understand that it's easy to be cynical about human nature when we look at the division and unnecessary suffering in the world, or we look inside at all the ways we don't treat ourselves with kindness. How can we come to the conclusion that human nature is essentially good. And yet, Tara Brock makes the case for our innate goodness with her stories, her compassionate perspective, and most of all, with practices that help us experience the true gold of our essential heart. You can learn more about Tara and her new book, Trusting the Gold, at trustingthegold.com. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times your meditation practice and that you've been meditating now for something like two decades and mm -hmm. are a meditation teacher. Tell me a little bit about how you made the decision to become a meditation teacher, how that opened up for you as a path for you. Sure. And um, I do, I have a, one of the doses actually launches off into that story. It's called Wiggle Room for those of you all who have the book. Um, if you want to read it in, in more detail, but long story short, I was curious about meditation because I had been practicing yoga. I was curious about yoga because I saw some pretty women going into a yoga class one day and I followed them in there to see what was going on and got hooked on the practice and, the, and then, you know, heard about meditation. And this is in my mid twenties 
And in my late twenties, I crossed paths with a, a meditation teacher, someone who, who properly works with people over the span of many days, weeks, and months, and gets them into a state of self-sufficiency with their practice. And he learned it in, in India from his teacher. And so the roots of it go all the way back, I think it's two or 3,000 years, to a, a, a guy by the name of Shankaracharya, whose whole deal was um, everything is connected. So, and the way you the way you transcend the intellectual understanding of that is you have to have a sensual experience of it. So he devised this style of meditation that gets you away from your surface mind, where we tend to intellectualize things and into your, your settled mind or your heart, where you feel things. You can feel them without being aware that you're feeling them. But when you come out of the meditation practice after 15 or 20 minutes, you have a greater sense of connectivity to whatever's around you. And and so, yeah, I started meditating in this, in this way. And I just, it, I was like a fish to water. It was, it was everything I hoped for and, and more. And then after a few years, he invited myself and some of his protégés to India to train us to become teachers. And I came, came back after a few months and uh, started teaching meditation from my one bedroom apartment in, uh, in West Hollywood, California. And turns out I wasn't so bad at it because I had been teaching yoga for a few years prior to that. And I felt like a complete sham of complete fraud at the front of my yoga classes. You know, I could do the whole soft voice. Okay. Now let go of your, this and observe that and witness, but inside I didn't feel any of that. And I, it was like the emperor's new clothes. And, but now that I had had the actual experience of what people call Samadhi or Nirvana or oneness, I was speaking from a place of authenticity and I could speak to the objections that most people have when they first start off, which is I have a monkey mind. This is too busy and that's too you know, chaotic. And I could help talk people down off the ledge with their meditation practice and get them to a point where they actually started enjoying it. And, uh, and that just kind of spread from there, started traveling all over the world and writing books. And here we are. So let's talk to that person who says, I have a monkey mind. I know I'm supposed to meditate. You know, I'd be more in touch with my intuition and my feeling if I did, but it's, yeah, it's never really worked for me. Like it's never really worked for me. Can you help me? Well, I would start by saying, um, if it, if you feel like it doesn't work for you, then there's probably some aspect of meditation that you're not, you don't, you're not understanding. And that's probably because it hasn't been explained to you simply enough. And I would equate meditation to swimming. Meditation is just like swimming, right? So if someone knows how to swim from one side of a pool to the other side of the pool, and someone else says, someone else with two arms and two legs says, I can't, swimming doesn't work for me. I can't, it's like, well, no, you just don't understand how to move your body through the water in such a way that allows the water to support you and help you glide across the pool. Once you understand those mechanics and you practice them a few times, you don't have to think about getting to the other side. You just do the mechanics and you'll start moving to the other side. And so the same thing is true for meditation. Once you understand how the mind operates in relationship to the meditation practice, then you don't have to think about quieting the mind. Your mind will naturally become quiet. And it's the same concept of, you know, what you resist persists. Most people go into the practice trying to force something to happen, trying to quiet the mind. And that ends up giving you the opposite of what you ultimately want, which is a loud, busy, chaotic mind. Can we do a little experiment right now? Can you introduce the way you approach meditation in a brief experience? Can we meditate together for a few minutes, like Watkins style? Yeah, but you know, what I think would be, we can, yes, the answer is yes. And what I think would be also helpful is to do a little thought experiment to illustrate that no, your, no one's mind is broken. Okay. And the thought, and the thought experiment actually comes from an actual experiment that was conducted back in the 80s um, by this Harvard psychologist. He was called the white polar bear study. Have you heard of the white polar bear study? I have. I think it's a great one. And I think it's a great one to share with our listeners. Yeah. So the, the way the study went was um, this person had a room full of students and he had little, little 
bells set up in front of each each student and he had them put their index finger on the bell or button and just sit comfortably in a chair and close their eyes and he told them for five minutes to think about white polar bears now we're gonna we're not gonna do this for five minutes but if you want to while you're listening to this if you're in a safe place to close your eyes for say 10 seconds i want you to close your eyes and i want you to put your attention on white polar bears and try not to think about any other thoughts except for a white polar bear. And then open your eyes. All right. So in the study, he gave them a different, he gave them an additional instruction, which is if you think about something other than a white polar bear, to tap the button so they can record how many times they got, quote unquote, distracted. So I would ask you, as the thinker of the white polar bear, did you think about anything other than the white polar bear within those 10 seconds? Usually, most people's hands would go up. Yes, I thought about why I was doing this. I thought about what I was going to do next. Or maybe you had the white polar bear half the time, maybe a third of the time. But very rarely do people have the white polar bear going for the whole 10 or however long you're, you're thinking about the white polar bear. Then the next part of the study is to close your eyes again. And this time, whatever you do, don't think about white polar bears. So try not to have any thoughts about white polar bears for 10 seconds. Really try it out if you can, if you're in a space to do so. and then open your eyes. And so in this part of the study, if they were accidentally thinking about the white polar bears, they would tap the button, right? Or if I was doing this in a room full of people, I would say, raise your hand if you accidentally thought about the white polar bear at any point during those 10 seconds, usually everybody's hand goes up. And the conclusion of the study is that when you're not supposed to be thinking about the white polar bear, people thought about them two or three times more than when you were specifically instructed to focus on the white polar bear. People thought about them more than when they weren't supposed to be doing it than they were when they were supposed to be doing it. And what this demonstrates is the nature of the mind, right? In other words, you can't suppress your thoughts. If you try to not think about something, you'll think about it more than if you just let the mind be natural. And so what I teach people how to do, and we can do this if you want for a few minutes, is to just let the mind roam free. And what happens is if you don't try to control the mind at all, it'll naturally, after a few minutes, start to become more settled. Settled does not mean quiet. It means it becomes less distracting, right? And you may find yourself dipping into little gaps where you're not thinking. So let's try it out. Let's, again, sit comfortably. You don't need to have your back straight for this. Let's close our eyes. Let's take a deep breath in. Let it out. And as you let it out, see if you can relax your body a little bit more. Let's do that one more time. Deep breath in. And as you release, relax your body a little bit more. Even if your shoulders slump a little bit, that's totally fine. Even if your chin drops a little bit, let's do one more time just for the road. Deep breath in and release. Now let your breathing be completely natural. And I invite you to just very, very innocently notice your breathing. That means no breath control. You're just literally noticing the fact that you are breathing. And what's going to happen at some point is your mind is going to drift away from you noticing that you're breathing to something completely unrelated. You're not going to notice when it happens initially, but at some point later, maybe you'll realize, oh wait, I'm sitting here with my eyes closed 
and I'm supposed to be meditating with light and Tammy, but I'm sitting here thinking about my shopping list. So at that point, this is really important. Do not overreact. Do not feel shameful. Do not feel like you did anything wrong. All you're going to do is very, very nonchalantly begin to notice your breathing again. And that's it. That's the whole technique. So we're going to practice that in silence for a couple of minutes just to give it a test drive and see how it goes. Sounds good. And usually what happens is you'll find that your mind will drift most of the time. Most of the time you'll be thinking about unrelated thoughts and very occasionally you will be thinking about the fact that you're breathing. But when you eventually come out after a couple of minutes, then you'll feel more relaxed. And this is, this is a, um, a way to initiate what's called the relaxation response, which is one of the primary effects that meditation can have on your nervous system. And the doctor who initially researched this said that in his estimation, being in the relaxation response for 10 or 20 minutes can be more restful for the body than sleeping for those same 10 or 20 minutes. So you get two to three times more rest in your body during the meditation. It doesn't replace the sleep. It's just supplements the sleep. So if your eyes are closed, you can slowly open your eyes. But that's essentially how it works. You can do it anytime on your own. You don't need someone to guide you through it. You just literally close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and start noticing your natural breathing. Let your mind roam free. And then after a few minutes, if you want to go longer, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, um, then you can, uh, you can slowly come out after that. And, th and that can be a nice little reset in the middle of your day. Uh, if you, especially if you feel drowsy or if you feel like you're a little spacey and you can come back to yourself that way. Do you call this style of meditation something light? I, I would just say it's the relaxation response. Just keep it simple. Right. You know, what I notice is there's a, a, it has a looseness to it for lack of a better word. I hope it's okay mm -hmm. to say that, but loose meaning I don't have to sit up straight. First of all, that's a big, that's a big relaxation response right there. Uh, you know, yeah, I can come back to my breathing, but in a kind of casual, not in a like, we are doing concentration practice and you better stay on it like your life depended on it, you know, coming back. So that's interesting. There's this sort of loose, relaxing, flowy quality to how you approach teaching meditation. Yeah, I consider it to be a meat and potato style of meditation as opposed to a Buddha bowl ashram style of meditation. And this is an important point for people to understand. When people say meditation is not for me, it's kind of like saying cooking is not for me or sports is not for me. There's so many varieties of meditation and some of them are pretty rigorous and austere. And a lot of them are not. A lot of them are very relaxing. And so you just have to find one that suits your specific lifestyle. And a very easy way to do this, if you're curious about exploring a specific style of meditation, is go to the place where people teach it or people practice it and look around the room when you walk in and just notice how people are dressed. If people, if the people who are operating at the highest levels of that particular style and enjoying it the most, if they're dressed all in robes and they have shaved heads and you're wearing street clothes, it's probably not going to be the best style for you. doesn't mean it doesn't work and it doesn't mean that they can't be into it. It's just probably not going to fit your lifestyle. But if you go into that room and you look around and the meditation enthusiasts of that style are wearing street clothes and you're wearing street clothes or they're wearing business clothes and you're wearing business clothes, that's probably a style that you'll find very suitable. But you're going to have to put the time in like everybody else. 
Now, I want to ask you a, a personal question, Light. I've, I've heard from some people, uh, some people of color, that they haven't felt very welcomed into the meditation and wellness world historically. I think that's changing. Uh, I think it's changing a lot in the last couple of years. And I'd be curious to know more from you as a black man, what it was like to enter the, the world of Indian style meditation and become a teacher. You know, I think this may be a little controversial as I'm thinking about, as I'm rehearsing it in my head, but I think it really has less to do with the race of the person and more to do with their, um, I'll, I'll stick to American society, more to do with their economic status, right? In other words, where are they on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Because when I'm when I was first operating in this space, there were black, there were some black people peppered throughout, and most of those people were not people who were, you know, surviving. Whereas a lot of of people in black communities are in survival mode, right? They're working two and three jobs. They're trying to make ends meet. They're existing off of, you know, very poor quality food because that's, they probably live in a food desert. They don't have the means, the time or the resources to go to Whole Foods or some health food store. And so their priorities really reflect their, their place in that sort of economic ecosystem. And that's systemic. That, that's definitely a systemic problem. And we can definitely connect those dots, you know, going as far back as slavery, why people are in those situations. But I think that's why practices like meditation aren't as appealing to uh, or haven't been as appealing when I first started out to the majority of the black population. Uh, whereas people who don't have those same concerns and who regularly go to health food stores and, and uh, yoga classes, it seems like an ex a natural extension of what they're already doing because they are operating at the self-actualization level of Maslow's hierarchy. And so that's, that's why, and, and, and I have to, you know, if I'm being completely honest, like I didn't grow up with, without my basic needs being met, I had plenty of everything that I needed. And so I was in a situation where I, I felt comfortable and safe exploring beyond the, the confines of the black community. And, and again, I, I kind of stepped into a leadership position and I said, well, you know, we need more examples of people who are introducing this and who are excelling at this and who are mastering these practices so that younger kids can look at me and other people who look like me and say, oh, if they can do it, then I can do it. And it's always a bit of a lag of time between the people, the haves and the have nots, the haves get there first, the have nots come 10 or 20 years later, but eventually they do come. And, um, you know, and so I feel so fortunate that I'm able, I've always felt fortunate to be in those spaces and that I'm able to have these experiences because I know that I am um, modeling a lifestyle that a lot of people are going to eventually adapt and um, or adopt. And, uh, and I get to be someone who introduces them, a gateway uh, presence, if you will. All right. Another thing I want to talk to you about, Light, is your podcast. Here you are. You know, we're having a little uh, podcast reciprocity, if you will. Your podcast called At the End of the Tunnel. And you lead people through a retrospective of their dark tunnel moments to reveal how they found in their own lives, their inner light. First of all, what a beautiful focus for a podcast series. How'd you come up with that? I have been obsessed with origin stories and the hero's journey. And five years ago, maybe six years ago now, I started a nonprofit called The Shine Movement, which was uh, like an inspirational variety show in person. And the intention was to shine a light on people who are doing good for the world. And we'd have music, musicians who would overcome some challenges to do what they're doing. And we'd have um, a speaker come up and give like a TED talk, but about 
a movement that they created. And I just saw how much it inspired people and how much it inspired me. And so once the pandemic started, we can no longer do live events. And I, I had been called to do a podcast for a while and I kept ignoring it and I just couldn't ignore it any longer. But I feel like the messaging from the media is very negative. In fact, that's not my opinion. I just read a statistic. It's 90% negative news in the, in the, in the media. And I feel like we need as much positivity and inspiration as we can possibly get. And I want to be one of those leading voices and sharing the story so that people know that you're not alone. You know, whatever you're going through, somebody else has gone through something similar to that. And they've been able to do the most that they can with what they had. And if they can do it, then you can do it as well. And that's what the world needs more of is people who are following their heart, who are allowing their inner guidance to to dictate their next move. Because if they do that, you don't have to think about, am I going to start a nonprofit or am I going to help people? Your life is already predetermined to service. We all are predetermined to service. And, and it doesn't mean you have to become Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Your service could be, you know, raising kids. It could be helping old elderly people across the street could be anything, anything that feels right to you. There's, there's a trillion different ways to serve. And, um, and the sooner we start to do that, then I feel like the more purposeful we'll feel like our lives are becoming. And so I want to just share as many stories as examples of how to do that and what other people have done. Now, this notion of making our way through dark tunnels, dark tunnel mm -hmm. moments, we've, talked in our conversation so far about some of the leaps that you've taken, but I wouldn't say they were necessarily dark tunnel moments. And I'm wondering if you can share with us your own passage through a dark tunnel moment and how you found your light, so to speak. Sure. So by dark tunnel, I don't necessarily mean, <laughs> I don't necessarily mean anything that was uh, negatively Super difficult or something? Or, yeah, it could be uncertainty, living through a lot of uncertainty. And there's two ways to do that. You can allow yourself to get catapulted into that dark tunnel via some painful moment that usually comes from ignoring your intuition. Because, you know, when we're in a bad situation, usually we were warned about it. Something inside of us told us there's something that's not right here but we keep exploring it until it gets to the point where it just becomes too unbearable. And then, you know, we have to make a change. So that's one way it's the enforced change, right? That's, that's definitely the more dramatic way to, to move through that tunnel. The other way is curiosity. In other words, front loading the uncertainty just from following your curiosity. And I've been, I've been consciously following that now for many years and unconscious consciously following that um, for a while. I'll share a little story of my childhood. When I was a kid, I remember being nine or 10 years old. And one day, one afternoon, my, I have three brothers. My parents were together. So very, very fortunate and stable household. But one afternoon... I just felt like, you know what? There's just too many people around. I got to get some space. I need my own space. And I've shared a room with my brother. So I never had that space. And I decided I'm going to go for a walk. You know, as a kid, you have like your known universe, which is probably maybe a five or 10 block radius. As these are the places my aunt lives here, my grandmother there. So I walk here, ride my bike there. Well, I got to the edge of my known universe on my little walk. And something inside of me just said, just keep going, keep walking. And so I kept walking and I kept walking. And next thing you know, maybe an hour later, I'm miles away. I'm at this shopping center that I'd only been to a few times with my mom driving there. And I was, I was actually pretty excited that I could walk there, that it was, it was, it was accessible just through walking. Um, and this is before cell phones. I grew up in the 70s. So it was before cell phones and, and, and apps and all that kind of stuff. So I had some quarters in my pocket and I went to a pay phone and I called my mom from the shopping center and I told her, she goes, where are you? 
And I said, oh, I'm at uh, such and such shopping center. And she freaks out. She goes, how did you get there? I said, I walked, I walked here. I just kept walking. And she just couldn't understand why I would do something like that. And that made me even more excited about it because it was like I broke out of this, this comfort zone for her and for myself. But it was a clue into how you could simulate that in the future. And so I would do similar types of experiments throughout my life, such as, you know, I I remember in college, I had this paid position working at the university that you had to audition for and interview for. And, you know, you made, you had a great parking space and all that. And I was just a junior, normally seniors get it. And so I did a great job at it. And then naturally, naturally, you're expected to go on and take the same position as a senior because you don't have to re-audition and, and, and interview for it. And I chose not to do it just because I wanted to see what it was like to give up something that's very valuable, right? And I ended up having this amazing senior year and working in Capitol Hill and doing all these wonderful things. I never regretted that decision. But I know that, you know, as I got older, I saw how tightly people you know, hold on to those valuable positions because they think it's not going to come again. And again, I don't know why I felt inclined to take take on these types of experiments, but it really did help me in a cumulative way in just being present and always challenging convention wherever I found it. And I and I feel like, you know, going nomadic two years before the pandemic, I didn't care about quarantine. The quarantine was my life, you know. I already knew how to sit in a room by myself for a long period of time and, uh, and how to get by with, with less and all of that. So I felt like I simulated it already. So by the time it came, I was able to then launch my podcast and finish writing this book and do all these other things that I didn't have time for because I had been traveling around and doing the whole nomadic thing. So it's kind of a cool way. I think following your heart, whoever you are listening to this, following your heart is a cool way to kind of stay ahead of the curve of when that change finally comes, you're already ready for it because that's encoded in your, in your DNA. I have one uh, final thing I wanna talk to you about, Light, that I was encouraged to ask you about from reading, knowing where to look. And it's a section that you write about called Everything at Once. And you write, I believe that everything is happening all at once and mm-hmm. we have the power to inspire our past and future selves. And I thought to myself, I definitely want to inspire my future self and my poor past self. I think it would be great to throw some healing at my poor past self. Uh, How do we do this? How do we have the power? What do we do to inspire our past and future selves? So the setup for that piece was I was in a cafe in Southern California ordering some food and the person taking my order recognized me as the author of my first book that he was reading at the time. And, um, and he was really into the book and he found it very helpful. And on my way home from the cafe, I was starting to think back to years before when I was sitting on the couch in my apartment struggling to write this book and finish the book. And you know how sometimes when we are in, in the middle of something um, challenging and we hear an inner voice telling us don't give up or you know to do something very specific. Uh, there was one time I was caught in a riptide as a teenager and I heard this inner voice say, swim along the side of the shoreline. And I wasn't a swimmer at the time. I could, I didn't know this, this, this hack to getting out of a riptide, but I heard this voice so clearly telling me to swim to the side. And sure enough, that was what you had to do to get out of a riptide. I found out later. Well, I believe that these inner voices could potentially be us talking to our past selves. And it doesn't have to be like a deliberate conversation, but just even having a thought oh, this is how you navigate this situation and you reflect back on your past challenges, that connection 
is a way of sort of transmitting that new information to your younger self. Or, you know, again, it, I think it can go the opposite direction as well. Giving your future self encouragement, don't give up, um, keep going and all of that. It's the way I see it. I, I like that. It makes me feel comfortable and it explains a lot of things because otherwise, how would I know to swim to the side? And, you know, where would I find, where else would I found that encouragement to keep going other than the person who knows me better than anyone else, which is myself, my, my future self. So that's kind of how I see that. What would you say right now to your future self, to Light Watkins 10 years from now? I think the message we could all use is keep trusting, no matter how crazy it looks, keep trusting that when you are following your heart, when you are well-intentioned, when you're doing what you feel like you're supposed to do in that moment, keep trusting that everything is working out in the way that it should for all reasons. I've been speaking with Light Watkins. He's the author of the new book, What Sounds True, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Check it out. Wonderful to be with you, Light. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really had fun. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.